Random Angst Productions presents the Middle Earth Movies Rewatch. Join your hosts, Mark and Justin, with special guest Kimball as we discuss the six movies in the Middle Earth saga. Welcome, everyone, to the Random Makes Podcast. Today, we'll be covering The Hobbit. We'll be going over Chapter 1 of The Hobbit Trilogy, An Unexpected Journey. We'll be covering the extended edition that came out after the film was released in theaters. So if you haven't seen that, we may be talking about a couple things here or there that weren't in the theatrical release. And I do recommend that you watch the extended edition as it fills in some of the blanks, some of the cracks, and it gives an overall better film experience, which is very similar to the rest of this trilogy as well as the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The extended editions are, in my opinion, uh, a lot better than the, the theatrical versions. But they are longer, of course. You're looking at at least three hours per film with the extended edition. But that's what we'll be doing for this episode. As always, I have with me my co-host, Mark. Hey, guys. How's it going? And also joining us for this Middle Earth movie series, we thought we'd bring on a special guest who enjoys the movies just as much as we do. So we want to give a special welcome to our guest host, Kimball. Hi, how are you guys doing? Pretty good. Thanks for joining us today on this episode. So you're Thanks for having me. Yep. So you're all the way out in Dallas, Texas, or close to Dallas? Yeah, just north of Dallas in a city called Plano. Okay. Cool. Well, we're glad you're here. Um, I know we've known each other for quite some time since you were born because we're cousins and I'm the older <laughs> cousin. <laughs> yes. But over the past couple of years, we've been uh, friends on Facebook and social media and stuff. And throughout the years, I've noticed that you've enjoyed watching and talking about Lord of the Rings as well as The Hobbit. So when I started thinking about doing a Hobbit rewatch episode, I wanted to bring you in on this and Along with Mark, he's a pretty good J.R.R. Tolkien fan as well, as, as am I. So I th- thought we could have a great conversation about this film as well as the subsequent films that follow. So we're glad you're here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. It should be, should be exciting. I like discussing Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit as, um, as I'm a, I'd say I'm a pretty good fan. Yeah. So why don't you give us a little rundown of yourself on all our guests. We'd like to let them introduce themselves, talk about their their favorite fandom. You know, what is your, your favorite uh, universe or, or film or book or whatever the case may be? And kind of, you know, what's your, what's your nerd cred? <clears throat> okay. Um, I would say, well, since we're talking about it, the Tolkien Lord of the Rings universe... Um, is a recent, as far as when the films came out, I started to become a fan. I didn't know existed since before the film. Really a lot of people, but that's all right. Um, in any of the other fandom universes, I enjoy the Marvel DC films. I am a pretty strong Christopher Nolan Batman, um, fan of him and books. I've been really getting into the Mitch Rapp American assassin books. I just discovered them last month and they're all on the library and I've been downloading them and been having a really good time with those. I don't know if you guys are familiar with, with that series, the authors, Vince Flynn. 
kind of like um, Jason Bourne. Okay. Just this uh, CIA um, assassin guy that is makes you feel like you've done nothing with your life. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so it sounds like it's a long-running series with multiple books. Yes, there's 16 books in the series. The author just he just died a few years ago, but they're um, continuing the story of the main character, Mitch Rapp. Oh, okay. So who's writing the books now? Is there one author or is it multiple authors? So far, it's just been one. Okay. Cool. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I like those kind of books because they're a quick read, at least the ones that I've read that are, sound similar to that. They're a quick read and they're entertaining. The story carries over from book to book, so it's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. So... We'll start off talking, like I said earlier, about an unexpected journey. And so a little history on this film, this trilogy of The Hobbit. Uh, it was only one book, <laughs> not three. That's yeah. what you should know. Yeah. This has always been one of Mark's pet peeves, but I don't mind it. Um, <laughs> the, the Hobbit was released in a novel form, I don't know, in probably 40s, 50s, right? while ago and then it was probably how long would you say it is 300 pages 355 according to goodreads okay yeah yeah depends on what version you get right some of them i think get down to like 280 or something depending on the book but yeah that's the general idea so just a normal book one one volume um, but yet, and then after that, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy was written and published. So this book was released initially before the Lord of the Rings novel novels, but, uh, in the film universe, uh, film version, the Lord of the Rings was produced and released in, I want to say 2000 or so, 2001, maybe. And then, so it came out earlier, and then The Hobbit was filmed, produced, released, um, probably 10 years after after that. So we kind of got a flip-flop on, on how things came out with, with The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Uh, initially, it was set to be a two-film series, I believe. And then as filming and production went on, they decided to do a third movie. So let's talk just a little bit about that. Mark, I know you have some opinions, so let, let us know what you think about how it went from one book to two movies to eventually three movies. Uh, to make money. <laughs> there, There is no reason. <laughs> I, I get that they added the Semerillion uh, into The Hobbit because technically some of the uh, – Things that happen in the Semerillion happen, you know, happened during the time of the Hobbit, even though it wasn't part of the main story. Right. And, uh, but if you really look at it, the number of pages that was actually added in to the movie is only like fifteen pages, twenty pages. I mean, there's maybe more. I probably less, but I, I mean, I don't know. It's really not a lot. We don't really know a lot about what's happening and. What I'm talking about is in the time that, you know, they go through the forest and uh, Gandalf leaves, you don't really know what happened to him during that time. And that's what, you know, the Semerillion talks about, uh-huh. uh, you know, just uh, a small section of the Semerillion talks about. So 
I I always thought it was silly they made this three movies. I maybe could have done two. I think two would have been definitely fine, especially because of the detail and some of the storylines that they picked up and yada yada. But uh, I mean, you could have easily cut out a lot of that. Like uh, you know, uh, was it Feely's love story with the elf? Yeah. You know, you could have you could have cut that whole thing out. I mean, that was strange in its own right. But you know, I I. I don't uh, – I'm not against dwarves and elves hooking up or anything. It's just, you know, not very practical. <laughs> um, but uh, – Well, didn't the, the extra detail, the extra storylines, didn't it enhance the movie for you or uh, – not, not in the way I liked it. For example, I mean, I I thought that was kind of neat. I mean, I get it. You love story and et cetera, et cetera. But I would have liked to see the extended version of Thrain – before I saw the love story of an elf and a dwarf. Okay. Does that make sense? So um, Thrain and, being uh, Thorin's father, or was he the yeah. grandfather? Or, he's the father. Yeah, he's the Thor, father. Or was Thor. the grandfather. Correct, yeah. So um, I would have rather seen that as you know be in the mainstream movie, not the extended edition, because that's uh, I think that's an important part uh, that people – you know, kind of t- tie some of the story together. But, I mean, overall, I liked it. I just thought it was a little long, especially, you know, you get, and I'm kind of getting out of the first movie, The Hobbit here, but, you know, when they're running around from the dragon for, like, 40 minutes. Yeah. Uh, in the, uh, you know, when they're in the um, mountain, when they first get in the mountain. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I think I would have liked them just to stick to the storyline there. You know, just be kind of simple. You could have cut out some time. Like I said, I mean, that's all just filler pieces. I mean, you could have had the main storylines, the big battles at the end, battle of the five armies, uh, etc., and just cut out a lot of the, the story filler stuff that made it need to be three movies. And uh, so I mean, that's the way I see bit. it. Yeah. I mean, it just kind of was a lot for a lot of movie and storytelling for a 350-page book. Right. Okay. Yeah, that has yep. kind of been some of the big complaints over the years is there's just a lot of filler. Perhaps people feel like it's a lot of filler that didn't need to be there um, and drag it out to three movies to make more money. And that's probably part of the agenda that they had. Why not? I mean, if it's making money and you can tell a good story, but some people didn't like that. Um, I think especially since it came after... Harry Potter and Twilight, those last books were split up into two movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He could have been following that trend, saw yeah. an opportunity to make an extra buck. Why not? Yeah. Well, yeah, because they know people are going to go to it. Hey, that's, that's all there is to it. People are going to go. It's kind of like a Star Wars movie. If, if they made some trash Star Wars movie named, I don't know, uh, The Last Jedi <laughs> or something – People will still go to it, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding, <laughs> but you get the idea, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think it might have been a studio decision. I mean, because it was going to be a two movie thing until the the first movie came out, right? So maybe the first movie it could have gone either way. I guess the first movie didn't make enough, so like, oh, we got to make two more. Or it made a lot, so they're like, oh, let's, let's expand the story. So I don't think it was strictly a money grab, but I'm sure it played a part in it. So anyway, 
enough of that. So the beginning of the film I thought was very interesting, and I was curious when I went and saw it in the theaters, you know, how is this going to start? Because they always, um, in the Lord of the Rings films, they always gave like a historical background for the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie, and then they transitioned into the story that we saw in the books. And so I was curious, you know, how are they going to start this movie? Are they going to start it with Bilbo when he was younger? Or, you know, I just didn't know. And so when I saw the film, I they gave the historical part about how the the dwarves founded the their kingdom under the mountain and were digging in the, the mountain for jewels and gold and all that stuff. And they were very prosperous and very rich. And then Smog got word of it and he came in and burned down the, the town of Dale and infiltrated the kingdom under the mountain in Erebor and just, you know, took over, basically kicked the dwarves out and uh, stayed there. Um, so and we kind of got that in the story of The Hobbit. As the story went on, it kind of talked about that. But then with the film starting, when that piece happened and the actual story, modern, current day story started, um, it was very interesting that it started on the same day as the Fellowship of the Ring started. It starts with Bilbo, they're planning the party, his 111th birthday party, and we actually get to see Frodo once again, which I had heard that Elijah Wood was going to be in the movie again, so that's another reason why I was curious, you know, what's his part going to be, and I was worried they were just going to do, oh, it's, you know, he's back, it's a nostalgia factor, but it wasn't, for me anyway. I thought it played in very well, transitioned well from you know we see Frodo there talking with Bilbo they have their old relationship back and then he he's like oh I'm gonna go meet Gandalf and he takes off and that's literally him taking off and meeting Gandalf is the start of Fellowship of the Ring so I thought that was a great for me it worked really well and I was pleasantly surprised with that but um, Kimball so I was wondering kind of what your thoughts are or were on on how that movie started how this movie started yeah, I like that a lot. As whenever two films can connect very well and mesh together, I appreciate that. And I think that's what Peter Jackson was trying to convey, and he did it really well. Right. Uh, I think it kind of gave us a, a behind-the-scenes to right before Gandalf shows up in The Fellowship of the Rings. You can kind of see, hey, what was Bilbo up to? There was even some hints of him disappearing and wanting to leave, and he kind of realized, oh, I slipped up. I said that in front of my nephew. I shouldn't have said that. And it's just, to me, I like details, and I like to know behind the scenes, and that's exactly what happened, and so I was pleased with that. Yeah. Yeah, that has handled well. What about from you, Mark? Um, what was your impressions of, of how this film started? Yeah, probably, probably like both of you guys. Uh, I was wondering how they tie that into because it's not like um, we saw The Hobbit first. So instead of tying in The Lord of the Rings with The Hobbit as a continuous storyline, they had to tie in something that happened in the past with an established storyline. Yeah. And so I liked how they did it kind of like, you know, he's writing this book there and back again and he's, oh, you know, I'm remember, remembering all these things and then, you know, kind of jumps into it. And, and I did like that because it it, it kind of makes it seem and, – and I guess this is true – like such a little part 
of the entire story. And, and it really was, right? The Bilbo's story is really small part. It was vital, right? Because that's where they find the ring. But, you know, it's kind of like they placed it in there uh, correctly. You know, they didn't make that the focus of the whole storyline, but they made it a focus of Bilbo's life to where he is now. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was very well done. And it started off the movie right, um, kind of gave context for... You know, people who aren't as big of fans, it kind of eased them back into the story. And for the hardcore fans, it was a nice treat to see the behind the scenes like Kimball had had mentioned. So it played well for both audiences, I believe. Uh, I want to get into a little bit about the characters. Uh, We had seen most of them, well, the main players, I guess, in the previous trilogy of Lord of the Rings. But uh, I want to touch a little bit about their kind of where they're at and how they relate to the overall story. And we'll start with Bilbo. We see in Lord of the Rings, uh, we see him as an older uh, gentleman. He's you know going to have his 111th birthday party. So he's getting up there. He's had his adventure and he's going to retire basically. And this movie starts out with, with that same actor, Ian Holmes. Right, Mark? Yep, Ian Holmes, Ian what is a great Holmes. actor. <laughs> and then uh, it transitions, you know, it flashes back 60 years, and then we get to see Martin Freeman uh, play the younger Bilbo. And we see him resistant to, you know, Gandalf shows up at his door, reminds him, hey, remember me? We used to, I used to come and do fireworks for you guys, and he vaguely remembers him. He remembers the fireworks, but not so much Gandalf. And they talk, and he's he wants no part of an adventure. He wants to stay home, smoke his pipe, eat his food, you know, just enjoy life. So it's, I mean, every character, every good story has a character that has to go through some change, right? Um, and this is his point where he you know, he's confronted with a divergent path and has to choose which which way he wants to go. Um, what about for you, Mark, as far as Bilbo, what was your impressions of him, at least at the start of this film and how consistent with he, was he with the previous movies? Uh, it was actually pretty good. I I liked it because, uh, in, in the book, it maybe explains this maybe a little bit better, but not a whole lot, but the Bagginses were a pretty well-known family in Hobbiton. They'd been there a long time and they were known for being just your straight Hobbit, you know, no adventures, no nothing. Uh, you know, they love to do whatever Hobbits do, whatever they do. That's what he was doing, you know, but his mom was Belladonna Took and the Tooks were known for being a little bit more adventurous than the Bagginses. And so I liked in the movie how, uh, Gandalf addresses that. And he says, you know, you're also the, you know, the son of, of Belladonna Took. You know, where's the boy that used to love go, to go play in the woods and look for elves and this, that, and the other. And uh, so I, I thought that was cool because you kind of got to see the inner struggle with Bilbo, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I'm doing everything that's expected of me, but but you're right. I have this side of me that I, I do want to go on adventure. And but the Hobbit in me tells me not that I shouldn't. 
And, and I thought that was really interesting. And they talk about it in the book just a little bit. And, uh, and I liked it, you know, he just so like unassuming, but then he's got this crazy side to him. Right. So it's kind of, yeah, well, yeah, the wild side for a hobbit is I'm sure skipping instead of walking, but, but you know what I mean? He's a, yeah, I, I liked that really how they tied that in there, you know, with his mom. Yeah. Yeah. It was good. Good details there. Um, for you, Kimball, when he, the dwarves show up as it has had his house, Gandalf comes and they're like, yeah, come on this adventure with us. You're going to be our burglar. There's a chance you could be eviscerated, blah, blah, blah. And he passes out and everything. And he ultimately <laughs> tells them no, right? But then he changes yeah. his mind. What did, what did you think of that shift in him? I think Bilbo changed his mind because deep down he really did want to go on an adventure and he wanted something more out of life, but he just didn't know he wanted it. And I think whenever they left, sometimes in life, whenever the moment passes you, you realize what you really wanted. And I think for Bilbo, whenever his house was empty and he woke up, I think something resonated within him and he knew at that moment, Hey, this is something I do want. This could be something fun. And that's when he left sprinting out of the house with that uh, note in hand and all signed. Yeah. Yeah. If on the surface, it looks pretty quick. Like he goes to bed saying no, he wakes up wanting yes. But I think we've all had those moments of, you know, like you said, the moment passes us by and then we're like, yeah, I, I kind of did want to, I do want to do that. So he, he jumps at the chance literally and runs out the door without a handkerchief. I might add. Yeah. <laughs> That's important. Yep. It's important. In the book, it's important, I yeah. should say. Yep. So then, uh, shifting gears to Gandalf, um, he's kind of been the same. It was, he's the constant of, of throughout the whole trilogy, right? He's the one that has the master plan and he knows what pieces to move and when to move them. He's kind of pushing everyone along, like, hey, we got to go this way type type thing. And he's been consistent. For me, he was consistent in this movie as well as the the previous three with Lord of the Rings and the, the following two, which we'll get to in some other episode. But he's the, he's the constant. Um, played by the same actor, which I always appreciate when, you know, movies that tell a consistent story over multiple movies, they use the same actor to play the same character. So that's very appreciated. I I don't know what I would feel about this trilogy of films if it had hadn't been Ian McKellen, if it'd been a different actor. Maybe I would have bought it. Maybe I wouldn't have. But there would have been a part of me that would have been like, you know, it's just not the same. Uh, for you, Kimball, what's your impression of Gandalf in this in this film and how he plays the part in organizing this whole company and moving everybody along? When I just watched this, uh, I just also watched the special features for this film, at least the first half of it. There's two long discs. And to me, watching this, Gandalf seemed very human instead of like this deity figure. If you notice when he's um, in Rivendell and he's talking to Lady Galadriel, Lady Galadriel asks why the halfling. And this is what this is one of my favorite quotes in that film. And he says, Saruman 
believes it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. It is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. Why Bilbo Baggins? Perhaps because I am afraid and he gives me courage. And during the special features, um, Ian was talking about that Gandalf really was afraid. And you can kind of see this human side come out of him. And I think he, he always knew that Bilbo would come through, but I think also deep down he was a little unsure of maybe the outcome or the fate um, happening with his company or with Smaug, just things in general. And there's also, I have more thoughts in Lord of the Rings in the next three chapters about Gandalf versus Strider or Aragorn um, and the relationship, how it kind of flips. But we can talk about that later. But for this uh, portion of the film, Gandalf seems more human instead of just uh, this higher figure that's all confident, all perfect. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think he is a little more unsure in this episode or in this chapter than we we see him later on, and uh, that's good character development, right? You don't want this. You want someone who grows as a character. I think Gandalf has been alive for hundreds of years. Is it? If I, if I remember. Thousands. He he shows up sometime in the begin uh, the beginning of the age or like near the end of the second age, I believe. And so he's been around for some time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know if there's anywhere that actually says how long, but I mean, uh, I would say a couple, couple thousand years at least. Okay. So you know, he's got a lot of experience with his magic, with dealing with people. But yet here we have someone who, he's not an elf, you know, so he's not eternal or close to it you know he's more mortal has mortality even though it's lengthened um but he is he's fearful like kimball mentioned so so yeah i'm looking on uh sorry to cut you off there i'm looking on some different sci-fi um sites and one that's called tolkien tolkien's legendarium they say approximately 2019 years old or 2019 years is how long he's been in Middle Earth. Okay. So would that be the second age then, like you said, or from the beginning? Yeah, I think it ends, he comes in the end of the second age and then goes through the third age. All right. Cool. Yeah, so it's interesting with, you know, someone with that much experience is afraid. You know, I think if I had been alive for 2,000 years, I'd be pretty confident of, of what I'm doing. But he isn't, so that's interesting. How he could have been. Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying he could have been more afraid because he was seen. You could tell in this movie he's a little, little skeptical. Saruman, so he could have been noticing a change in Saruman, like him, his allegiance, or him faltering. So that made Gandalf be more, be more afraid because his leader, his wizard leader, is not quite as strong or not quite as faithful as he used to be. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, speaking of wizards, uh, we kind of get a lowdown, a rundown of, of the wizards. I guess there's, there's five wizards total. Uh, Gandalf the Gray, Saruman the White, Radagast the Brown, 
And then in the movie, he says there's two blue wizards, but he doesn't mention them by name, but I believe in the books they are mentioned by name. They're not, actually. (laughs) That is – there's um, thoughts, there's ideas that uh, they've been named before, but no one's actually said. When the books came out, they never had a name, and people had asked J.R.R. Tolkien for it for years, and then he died. (laughs) <laughs> so no one really knows. Uh, there's been a lot of rumors that there's a, it's actually written down in notes that he has at home that his family has, but that they say that he says never release these names. Huh. And that's what J.R.R. Tolkien did. He did a lot of things like that, kind of like Robert Jordan, um, where he writes a storyline or, or something, and it's like it's up to you to figure out what happened. You know, you you can answer that in your own mind or you can't, and that's kind of. What he did, because the idea is, well, whatever happened to the Blue Wizards? Nobody knows. What happened to Radagast? Nobody knows, right? And uh, and it's never been answered, and a lot of people don't think it ever will be. The family will never release anything, because that was J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, wishes. So, but yeah, they're they're never named. You just know there's a two Blue Wizards. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, they could write a whole another movie based off those wizards, right? So maybe it'll come out. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of thought. I mean, it's, it's a little straying a little bit away, but there's a lot of thought that they went into, I think, the north, uh, where, um, you know, where the men came out of. Yeah. Uh, it's like Fornost and those areas that fell uh, to the the war of, you know, the original war. That uh, They went there and... There's a lot of idea, like a lot of evidence that they were killed, and that there's a lot of evidence that they turned over to the dark side or whatever you want to call it. So, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. So, five wizards. Um, we see three of them in this film, which I think adds some depth to the story, overall story. Uh, one of them we see Radagast the Brown. He plays a small small part in this. And he lives in what's called the Greenwood at the start of the, the film. But they hint at it, and I think they even mention it, that they're starting to call it Mirkwood because there's some dark magic, some witchcraft going on there that uh, comes from Dol Guldur. Mm-hmm. It's a hard word to say. Dol Guldur. Dol Guldur. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So Radagast notices that the animals and the plants are kind of, they're, they're dying. And then the spiders are coming in and infesting the woods. So he tries to figure out what's going on because I guess his area of caretaking is the Greenwood. And so he ends up going to Dogledur, which had been abandoned for a while, and finds the Necromancer, which I think was a great addition to the story. That wasn't in the novel, if I remember correctly. What? what I'm sorry, say it again. What was it in the novel? The Necromancer. No, it wasn't in the novel, uh, but I think it's mentioned, if I remember right, in the Semerillion. Yeah. So that's one of the things that I enjoyed that they did add. Um, any thoughts on Radagast the Brown, Kimball? Um, no, not too much. Liked his, him as a character. I thought he was... Hair. Yeah, that made <laughs> All it... All the time. <laughs> made it exciting. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like it, though, like, because it... You know, um, so each wizard was, they all had the same general mission, right? Uh, to 
to come to Middle Earth and unite the people to fight against Sauron, right? But they were all told to not directly fight Sauron himself because what a lot of people don't realize is that Sauron and the Istari, the wizards, they all come from the same place. They're all Valar. So they're technically equally as powerful as, as Sauron is. And uh, but you don't get to see it because they were told, do, you know, you can't do it. The men have to. You have to get these people together. But uh, in the Cimmerillion, it talks about Radagast, and it tells it talks about that he was also sent to watch, you know, the the nature uh, of the world. And like I think they did a good job showing that that's what he was doing. Like, hey, I've got this mission, and and well, there's no Sauron, so I'm going to get lost in this one. And I, I like that because I thought it was really like his character. That's what he would really be doing. Yeah. Yep. So and then we have the dwarves, which play a major part in this film. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about them. Just They were the ones that were kicked out of Erebor, the Lonely Mountain, at the beginning of the film. And they come up with an idea with... Gandalf kind of pushing them in the right direction to to be able to take back their kingdom and they have to defeat Smaug the the dragon and either kick him out or kill him so they can retake their kingdom and they come up with a plan but that plan involves having a burglar which ends up being Bilbo and that's his introduction into this story um, but we see there there's 13 dwarves, and another reason they decide to get a burglar is 13 is an unlucky number, so they want to get a, a 14th member. Um, so he is brought in, but we see the different personalities of the dwarves. They're unique. Um, they're similar in some ways. They're entertaining. They're always getting into trouble, but they can be serious. They can be joking around. So a lot of good variety there. Um we see Thorn Oakenshield, how he became to be known as Thorn Oakenshield. Uh, when he, when, uh, before this plan, a few years ago, they decided to go back to, or go to Moria, which used to be a dwarven kingdom, but it was overrun by orcs. So they try to go back and take that, but are defeated. And in the process, Thorin fights the, the orcs, and he ends up losing his shield as well as his grandfather. His grandfather is beheaded, and his his dad goes crazy as he watches that. And so Thorin has to lead the, uh, the dwarves, but he takes up an oak, and bran- an oak branch to defend himself since he lost his shield and is able to momentarily defeat the orcs. And so he you know, becomes known as Thorin Oakenshield. One of the things about... Since he is one of the main characters with Thorin, uh, I kind of want to get your guys' opinion on on him. Uh, I didn't like him in this movie. I thought he was a little too harsh at times. I mean, I guess that's part of his character. You know, he's been kicked out and ridiculed throughout his life and been through a lot of tragedy and trauma. But he wasn't a very sympathetic character for me. So, uh, Kimball, what was your opinion of, of Thorin and his uh, role in this movie? I can see why uh, it, it's hard to like or love Thorin. But for some reason, I, I feel drawn to him, and he's my favorite character, strangely enough, because I do find myself annoyed with him, especially getting frustrated at, 
at poor Bilbo when Bilbo's just doing the best he can, like when they're on the the mountains in the misty mountains and there's that stone giant fight and he just you know gets really mad at Bilbo and Bilbo didn't do anything. But I, I like Thorne because he does he's a he has a struggle within him. He wants to reclaim his kingdom. He wants to have honor and respect like his grandpa did and his dad. And something also that I noticed in watching it recently in the special edition, the extended scenes is there's a scene when they're in Rivendell, Thorin and Bilbo are kind of just together. They're not talking, but they're overhearing Gandalf and Elrond speaking and Elrond is just kind of bashing on Thorin's family lineage. He doesn't trust Thorin because his grandpa went mad, his dad went mad, and he thinks Thorin shares that same sickness. And you can see it in in Thorin's eyes that he kind of of feels a little bad, kind of feels down, or he realizes his faults and flaws. And um, no one likes to hear that about themselves, even if it is true. So I kind of feel for Thorin. He He's not the most easiest person to love, but he's also not the worst guy in the world either. Um, but he's uh, he's one of my favorite characters. Okay, good. Yeah, he definitely um, has the, the card stacked against him at the beginning of this film. But he's able to work through it a little bit as, as we see him go on this journey. Any thoughts from you, Mark, about Thorin? Yeah, I liked him. Uh, I think the one thing I didn't like, and this is I, this is pretty unpopular, is how young they made him look. Because in the actual story, he was the oldest, but he didn't look the oldest at all, right? I mean, he looked older, wiser. But I, I kind of like how they portrayed him because, I mean, he's the oldest dwarf there. He's almost 200 years old. He's seen things. He's lost his homeland. He's seen many friends die. His dad's gone, doesn't know where his dad is. His grandfather was killed. He's basically a king without a kingdom. You know what I mean? And, you know, I, I like how it is when, you know, when they're they're running away and, and uh, Balin, tell, Balin tells that story about him, you know. Um, and before that, uh, Feely and Keely were joking around. And he kind of gets after him, like, you guys know nothing of the world, you know? And, and I like that because it, I mean, it, I don't know, it, it really kind of makes me think about like an old warrior would actually be like, like, he, here's this hardened warrior that's that's been through it all and, and he doesn't have time for nonsense. He's here for, you know, to get things done. And, and I think I like it too, because my original, uh, entrance to this world was the old uh, 1977 animated version of the hobbit where they did the movie in like an hour yeah. and uh <laughs> um and so i always compare it to that thorin or that gandalf because that's that was the original for me i hadn't even read the books yet i think it was like seven years old and so for me i i think a lot of his attitudes matched that thorin but a lot of his looks and some of his characteristics didn't. And and that bugged me because I've always known Thorne to be this way, not, you know, 2014 remake, you know? Yeah. 
yeah, I think I think overall they did a great job with him. I mean, with me not liking him, I, that created a, a reaction for me. So I think the filmmakers did their job, right? You want to create a reaction for characters, for situations. So, um, But uh, we'll see him progress and grow later on in the other films. So now I want to transition into different events of their journey. Uh, they, they, The dwarves meet up with Bilbo in Hobbiton, in Bilbo's house, and then they... Their goal is to go to Erebor, the lonely mountain where their kingdom was. And in this film, we see them go from Hobbiton all the way to just the borders of the Greenwood or the Mirkwood. And they get past the Misty Mountains, and then the film ends. They are, they're able to see Erebor off into the distance, and then you know that's the end of this film. So they didn't quite, probably got halfway through their journey in this film. But uh, in the beginning, the prologue of this movie, we see the dwarves and the elves and how they, their relationship kind of splintered and fell apart due to riches, basically. And then when Smaug came and defeated the, the dwarves, the elves were there, but they didn't engage with the dragon, which I kind of don't blame them. <laughs> they're, they're probably not going to do much <laughs> to defeat Smaug. But. Yeah, guys, just, help us. There's this dragon killing everyone with fire. Come help us. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, yeah, I'll be right there. Just give me a second. Got to tie my shoe. Yeah. What so, were the elves doing there? I, were they planning on help? Yeah. That's or a good question. want to show up and then turn around and leave on purpose? Yeah. I, I think it was that, – that part's not in the book anyway, right? That was their adaption. I think it was more like they came to help and they're like, oh, crap, like – uh, they're all dead and everyone's running. So adios, you know, like, well, you know, what's the point of dying now? Yeah. I, I had similar questions like how do they get there so fast? Why are they just standing there watching? I mean, at least go down and help them escape. Right. They're not necessarily, not necessarily fight them off, but help talk to them and say, Hey, what happened? You know, what can we do to help? And I think, Perhaps that's the salt in the wound for Thorin is, you know, you guys came and then just left and even do anything to help us out. But yeah, how did they know that the dragon was attacking and how did they cover all this distance in five minutes or, you know, whatever, how long that uh, attack lasted from Smog? So, but it, I think it was just there to show the audience, hey, there's a rift here and this is part of why so we see that they don't like each other and when they're being chased by the orcs after they leave uh, Hobbiton and they're crossing the the wilderness uh, the orcs find them they're chasing them down with their wargs which are these big wolf animals that the orcs ride and uh, Gandalf leads them to the elven city of Rivendell which is a haven the orcs can't enter there but they go, they go in through the hidden pass. And when I was reading that, this book as a kid, this part for some reason really intrigued me that there was a hidden pass to a hidden city and the elves lived there, right? That's pretty mysterious. So it was good for me to, when this part came on the, the, the screen, I re- really got a kick out of it and enjoyed the hidden pass. And it, it matched up. The entrance didn't really match up to what I had thought in my mind 
but once they were in going through the the crevice and into the city that was pretty uh comparable to what i had imagined it to be when i read the book as a teenager so that was cool to see and then we see the dwarves and the elves and how they interact they're suspicious of each other you know dwarves like meat they're more uh cavemanish i guess and elven elves are more vegan vegetarian so there's <laughs> you know that whole conflict there and like Kimball mentioned earlier Elrond is talking trash about Thorin and his family and he overhears it so he doesn't trust him that much more but they need Elrond they need him to read the map that Thorin has to discern and figure out how can we enter into the lonely mountain and what can we do to to get our kingdom back so Elrond's able to read the map through moon runes which are written in secret and he reads and tells them you know when and where they need to go to be able to get into the kingdom under the mountain and I guess there's a back door so you know a vital part that they have to trust someone who they don't normally trust And then I think one of the key parts in the whole trilogy happens here in Rivendell with the meeting with Gandalf, Saruman the White, Galadriel, and Elrond. Galadriel is an elven princess, queen? What What's her title? I, I can't remember off the bat. Uh, she's technically a queen because she, she and her husband are rulers of Lothlorien. Right. But she's generally considered, besides besides the wizards, uh, the most powerful entity in Middle-earth. Uh, they explain it that Sauron would have to go to Lothlorien himself in person in order to destroy it. So, like, there's nothing that he could send against her to, to kill her. So, uh, so I think she's revered and respected not only for... Because she's a queen, but because everyone recognizes her power as as more than formidable. Right. So her and Glad or Gladriel and Elrond both have rings of power. Uh, elven rings. Is there three rings for the elves? Is that what it was? Yep. Yep. Three rings for the elves. Uh, she carries one. Uh, What's his name? Elrond. <laughs> We're just talking. Elrond carries one, and the shipwright carried one. I don't remember his name, but he gave his to Gandalf. So Gandalf carries one. That's right. Yeah, so we got four of the most powerful people in Middle-earth meeting together to discuss politics, uh, basically. And for me, this was a key part in the sense that it gave a lot of background. It gave a lot of context for what Gandalf was doing. And what the powers were that were against them. So um, they talk about, they gather together, they, they talk about Sauron and his strength, how it's growing. They talk about the rings of power, the one ring, how Sauron doesn't have the one ring, so he's not all powerful. And they talk about the necromancer. Um, Saruman kind of discounts it and says, oh, there's no necromancer. He died a long time ago. What are you talking about? Then Gandalf pulls out this blade that uh, Radagast had recovered when he visited Dogoldur. And still, Saruman's like, no, that doesn't really show anything. It's just a a blade. You know, we don't know. 
anything about it. So he's kind of throwing water on the fire. Um, what did you, Kimball, what did you think about this scene? And was it important to you or was it just good information or kind of what were your thoughts on that? That scene was good. It left me with more questions as far as they talked about the dwarf rings too. And one of them was kind of unknown and I don't know, I'm not too knowledgeable in who has that, but it kind of gives you more of a backstory, but why doesn't uh, Galadriel, can't she see that Saruman is, you know, fading away is kind of like throwing water on the fire, like you're saying, because she's able to decipher thoughts and things like that. Is, is uh, Saruman just able to hide that from her? So, uh, sorry, go ahead, Justin. I was just going to say, I think she does start to sense it, but as far as reading his mind, I, I don't think she can, or she doesn't anyway. Yeah, so I, I don't know how much you everyone likes the history lessons, but uh, <laughs> so I know I'm, I'm a Tolkien nerd. So well, the way it was here. set up, <laughs> the way it was set up is that uh, we only see like four members of this council, right? And we assume Radagast is part of it. But this council actually held a lot of people, all right? Gil-Galad was part of it. Elrond's sons were part of it. There was, you know, a lot of people that that were in this group. And when it was formed, uh, Galadriel actually wanted Gandalf to be in charge of this group. But because it's a collective group, they voted on it and Saruman became in charge. So she never like thought more of Sauron than Gandalf. She always trusted Gandalf more. And that's why she wanted to be in charge. And at this time, what you don't really know is that Saruman has actually been looking for the One Ring for some time. He's been searching through those fields. He's been searching through the rivers and waters, thinking that he's going to find it. And obviously he can't because Gollum finds it, right? So he was really, when, when they brought that up, he was really against it because he didn't want them to spoil him finding this ring. And so it, he really spoke against it. They voted on it and it was voted down. So it's not that they kind of portray it weird in this because it's not that Saruman just says, Oh, this guy's crazy. Gandalf, he don't know what he's talking about. Just some, you know, woodsmen call this guy, a, uh, you know, the necromancer. I mean, like, yeah. you know, no one trusts Gandalf kind of thing. You know, he like is so obtuse about it, but in the actual, you know, telling of it, it's it's more than that. He convinces a large amount of this group to trust him, and they all trust him. And they say, okay, you know, Saruman knows what he's talking about. And uh, so that's kind of what it is. It's not that, you know, Galadriel could just say no. They had this, this council that made these decisions. And um, unfortunately, Saruman was able to sweet-talk him. And you kind of see in the books, you know, like at the end that they didn't show in the movie, that Sar- that's what Saruman does. He can sweet talk anything and anyone. That's part of his main power is to do that. And that's what he did there and really turned people against Gandalf uh, and, and his stances. Yeah. And so all this material is in the similar, similar, how do you say it? Semerillion. Semerillion. Is that where mm-hmm. it's? Okay. Yeah, they talk about it there. I believe they talk a little bit about it in the book, but just like they just kind of touch on it about the council. But uh, yeah, they talk more about it in depth than in other places. Okay. 
Yeah, so for me, that scene had a lot of con- added a lot of context for what was going on and why they were uh, why Gandalf was basically sponsoring the these dwarves to to go fight Smog. Because didn't Smog uh, keep Sauron in check, or was there was something something that Smog was doing that they didn't want to remove him yet? That, that's a good question. I don't know. The only thing I, I, I really know is that Smog held allegiance to nobody and that uh, Gandalf was always worried that Smog would decide to, to side with Sauron. Okay. As opposed to staying neutral. And then the, the mountain had a, a really strategic value. Yeah. And so – but yeah, as far as Smog choosing sides, I, I, I don't really think that him and Sauron had anything going on. But, I mean, who knows? Yeah. So I think the Lonely Mountain kind of separated the north from Sauron's kingdom, right? That, that So that was the strategic part of it? That- Cor- correct. Yeah, that it. So <laughs> in The Lord of the Rings, um, a lot of people talk about, like, a lot of the questions were, well, where are the dwarves from the Lonely Mountain? Like, what they just didn't want to help in the final fight of everything. But uh, I think it talks about this in the Cimmerillion too, or it's mentioned somewhere that they were actually in a big war as well. And uh, um, the son of, uh, what's his name? The uh, <laughs> the archer guy becomes king of the men. Oh, yeah, Bard. Bard. His son actually dies in that war, uh, defending defending the Northmen from coming down and joining the fight. So they're actually in a big war there as well. Um, so it's uh, it's pretty important to, you know, the overall story. You just don't get a read about it because it's not right where all the action's going on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm a nerd. I'm sorry. <laughs> no apologies needed. This is, this is what we do, right? <laughs> For sure. So then, while they're having this council, the dwarves sneak out so that they can't be stopped or held prisoner or delayed, I guess. So that's another reason why Gandalf was uh, meeting with the council, so they could sneak out. And they make their way to the Misty Mountains. Uh, They're crossing the, the passes, and the stone giants are battling... I don't remember that happening in the book. I think they had mentioned that there were stone giants, but I don't remember an actual battle f- while they were crossing. I, I just remember a storm. I don't know. Am I wrong? No, you're right. They they mentioned like they could hear the crashing. Yeah. Uh, and he was like, oh, what's that sound? Is that the thunder? And someone's like, no, you know, they're the mountain the giants or whatever they're called and he just kind of heard it i don't think it there's a a thing like that but i really did like that part in the book i thought that was pretty um you know as far as the sequence goes i was like that's really neat how they how they did that yeah any thoughts on the stone giants kimball it was a it was a good scene um it was fun watching it how they set it up in the special features uh 
and the actor's portrayal of it. That was a kind of a tough scene for them because they were carrying 50 kilograms of weight and weapons, all their gear from the Shire, and then having to be soaking wet. It was it was kind of taxing on them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it would be hard. So, yeah, definitely, while it wasn't in the story, specifically how it played out on, on screen, it was a lot more interesting and, and exciting to watch. That's for sure. So... And then we see the part where Kimball mentioned earlier where Bilbo had fallen and was hanging off the cliff. Thorne saved him, but yet Thorne was still mad at him for being there. So uh, that was kind of a key part as well. They find the co- the cave and they they go in there to camp on the front doorstep of the goblins and they end up getting captured by the goblins and are taken to the goblin king and in that whole process Bilbo gets separated from the group and he gets in the book he gets lost in the tunnels as he tries to escape but in the movie he kind of falls off the edge of the cliff and gets lost in the tunnels it's semantics really but he another key part is he ends up meeting with Gollum who's kind of a key part to the whole story this story as well as the Lord of the Rings story. And so, Kimball, you want to walk us through or talk to about uh, Bilbo's meeting with Gollum and the importance that 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 had? So Bilbo discovers that there's this strange creature there, and he's a little afraid, although I guess he wouldn't be more scary looking than any of the goblins and orcs that he's come across, but uh, (laughs) Bilbo notices that this strange creature um, has has these weird behaviors and he finds this ring and he just slips in his pocket. He doesn't know what it is. I'm sure that he just thought, oh, a nice little ring. Yeah. But he realizes that he's his life is kind of in danger, so he needs to get out. He needs to get his way back to the group because I don't think that he, I don't think Bilbo was purposefully meant to separate himself from the group i think it was kind of an accident he didn't want to leave and he wanted to go back to the group so he finds uh out that Gollum likes to do uh these riddles and it's a fun part in the book and also in the film it's i like um guessing what the riddle is before one of the characters does uh just because it's it had been a while and i i couldn't quite remember the answers and uh, um, Bilbo is able to be the victor in that game and kind of, I don't think he tricked Gollum. He did ask him the last question, what's in his his nasty pockets is. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, that's not quite a traditional riddle, but... But yeah, it worked. So that's good. What were you going to say, Mark? Oh, no. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, you're right. I mean, it... All, all they knew is it made him invisible. Yeah. Right. I mean, they didn't. They had no idea what it did. They had no idea what it was. So I mean, because the the story's not really about the ring, and I think that's what people need to remember. It's about Bilbo's adventure. Yeah. Yeah. There in this story, the ring is just a a side plot, I guess you could say. Um. So yeah, he he gets the ring. Gollum goes crazy and chases him because he stole it from him. 
and then eventually Bilbo ends up meeting up with his party. Uh, the the dwarves as, as they're escaping, uh, the orcs and are they orcs or goblins or is that a, is that name synonymous with each with each other? Uh, no, they're different. Uh, they're goblins. Okay. is what it is. So I mean. It, there's a difference, and I could get into that, but that's really far removed from anything we're talking about. But, uh, right. yeah, they're, they're goblins. Okay. Why does a sting glow whenever those goblins are nearby? I thought it only glowed when there were just orcs nearby. Or is it both? It's – I don't remember if it's both, but it's go, it's mostly goblins because it was forged, I think, during the first age, uh, during the uh, Battles of Gondolin. And when it was forged, one of the ways that the elves could tell when they were being attacked or ambushed is when their swords started to glow. But it was only swords made of like a certain way with certain powers. Sting was one of them and two of the other swords that were made at that time that it never mentions they glowed. But according to everything else, like the history of how they're made, they should have. But it would have been the swords that are carried by Thorin and Gandalf. Yeah. Well, aren't uh, orcs a mixture of goblins and something else? Or is that... Uh, no, I think you're thinking of the Ur- Ur- Urukai. Urukai, yeah. Urukai, okay. yeah. But uh, the orcs, orcs are... Men, right? I can't remember. That That's a good question. I From I'm... what I understand, the orcs used to be elves, and they've been corrupted and changed. Goblins right. are just a creature, but orcs are actually former elves. That's right. Okay, so apparently the sword glows around goblins and orcs. Um, maybe we'll look into a reasoning for that report on it on our next podcast. But So yeah, um, Bilbo meets up with the dwarves. Uh, but in the meantime, while Bilbo was down in the caves talking with Gollum and doing the riddle game, the dwarves are escaping from the goblins and the goblin king. So there's a pretty intense um, escape scene. I thought it was kind of, it was pretty intense, a lot of fun to watch and entertaining. I kind of got the impression <laughs> like, they got their team, their creative team together, and they're like, okay, let's come up with as many ways as possible to use bridges and ladders and rocks to kill goblins. Because <laughs> that's all you <laughs> see is the goblins bouncing off the bridges and falling and getting crushed by rocks. And there's just this crazy, intense chase scene, which was pretty cool. Yeah, no, it it was pretty amazing. I liked that whole sequence of events. Um, all I gotta say is there better be like a billion goblins because if a billion, if a thousand goblins can't take down thirteen dwarves and a wizard, then um, I'm not sure what good they are. Hmm. So I, I just assume that there's so many of them that they just have waiting numbers to make them uh, legitimate. <laughs> yeah, well, that's kind of the impression I got. They were just bumbling idiots, and they had their leader telling them what to do so outside of that they weren't very intelligent so yeah no it, it was a really cool scene like you said though it was awesome to watch him run try all these cool things and um it, it was neat it, it brought a lot of, of fun into the yeah into the whole thing yeah 
And I think this um, chase scene, the sequence, they kind of have a similar sequence in the following movies with chapter two and three with the dwarves. That kind of becomes their signature moments, I guess. Um, they, I don't think they went to the well too much with it because each sequence was different, but it was very similar. So it was definitely one of the, the funner moments of the film. So they escape, uh, come out the other side of the Misty Mountains. But then they meet up with the orcs who have been chasing them and their wargs that they're riding. Uh, we meet, we've seen Azog, the, the white, the pale orc throughout the film. But this is the confrontation between Azog and Thorin. Thorin thought Azog had been killed already. But this is the moment he finds out that he isn't. He's still alive. Um, what did you guys think of Azog and his kind of why he's there? I mean, he played a, definitely played a bigger part in the film than he did in the book. So was that a good addition? Was it too much? What do you guys think? Kimball? I liked it. I thought that the book didn't give him enough information. You see, you hear about this great white um orc and then you don't hear much from him in the book but in the movie yeah it doesn't follow along how the book goes but you get to see this terror this menace um just really chase after these dwarves and kind of ruin their lives and i think he brings a good element to uh, to these films yeah yeah you kind of <laughs> need an, an antagonist who's powerful i mean if it was good to push the story along and they're always running from him and you know, he's the bad guy. So you kind of got to have a villain that's equal to the strength of the, the heroes. And so I think that was a good addition to expand upon his story. Like you said, um, Mark, what, is, what were your thoughts about Azog? I liked him. I thought he was uh, a great addition. He's mentioned in the, in the books, but like in one line, yeah. So all it really says is that it killed uh, – that Azog had killed Thor. Thor. Thoror. <laughs> and uh, um, but that's really it. But I like how they put him in this uh, in this movie and uh, kind of amplified his role and who he was. And he's this you know, great adversary. And uh, you know, he's one of Sauron's top lieutenants. And you kind of get to see why, kind of how they built up the character. I'm always – you know, I'm – Kind of with Kimball here that I wish they would have done a little bit more context with him as opposed to he's just there because he's there. Like, where did he come from? Like, you know, all that stuff. I would like to know a little bit more, but that's, I mean, nobody knows, right? They would have had to make that up too. But yeah. uh, no, I, I really liked him. I I mean, I give, I give his character an A for sure. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely menacing and frightening. So that was good. I wonder if he's like, if he's like the Goliath of his race, or are there many more um, orcs of his size? Because if there were an army of Azogs that could easily wipe out, um, you know, the the armies in the Lord of the Rings that are depicted, but just because the orcs that are in the Lord of the Rings, they're kind of weaker, smaller, and they get defeated pretty pretty easily. But if there were more of these Azog-type characters, then why didn't Sauron recruit them? Or maybe there was just 
a few of them. Yeah, it's a good point. I like to think about that, like, where are the rest of these huge, giant orcs? Yeah. Uh, weren't the the orcs in the north, weren't they pretty, they're stronger than the ones we see in Lord of the Rings? Like, in the Battle of the Five Armies, aren't they a little more menacing? Yeah, you don't really know. So, in the movie, they, they call them the Gundabad orcs. Yeah. And, you know, they, and it kind of leads to the idea that these Gundabad orcs were huge and monstrous and stronger than the rest of the orcs. But that's not in the books anywhere. Uh-huh. That, you know, it doesn't really ever talk about it. So he, he just kind of infers. All you really hear about Gundabad is it was a an area in the north that there was a lot of fighting during the first first couple ages. Um, especially when Fornost fell. For, for those that don't know, Fornost was like the kingdom of, you know, like a Strider or, you know, whatever whatever name you want to call him that, you know, uh, I can't even think of his real name. Aragon. Uh, Fornost was like the original, one of the original kingdoms for his people, and it was destroyed. But Gundabad was like an area that had a lot of fighting. A lot of people were destroyed there. A lot of people were killed. And so they just kind of brought that in to, to make it up. Because in the book, all it really talks about is him as being a great goblin. That's all it says. He's one of the a, a big, huge goblin. And and so I, I don't know if there was actually orcs up that way that they were larger, but I like how they brought that in to kind of explain it. And then uh, if you kind of know the history, then it makes up for the difference saying, oh, well, most of Gundabad was destroyed by the good guys anyway so there'd only be a couple left true yeah yeah but definitely Izog had his you know advantage over the rest of his his people um so he's he's fierce he takes on he calls out Thorin Thorin takes the bait and he Thorin fails pretty quickly I mean one strike basically and he's on his back <laughs> right you kind of like oh I, th- I thought he was a great warrior <laughs> yeah not much there but then we see Bilbo step up he finds the courage and steps in and saves Thorn more momentarily um, then that kind of goes south as well the wargs are attacking the other dwarves you know things are about to come to a head of the year they're going to die or they're going to be saved but we get to see the eagles come. And the eagles swoop in, take out a lot of the wargs and the orcs that are there, and kind of rescue the dwarves from certain death, either by the the orcs or by falling off the edge of the cliff there. So they have their moment, their moment in the sun, I guess you could say, and come in and save the day. I thought it was great to see the eagles because they played a huge part in um, Return of the King. I mean, they basically save Frodo and Sam. And so you know they're there. And if you've read the book, you see them. But you read about them. But in the movie, it's great to see them come in and how majestic they are and how powerful they are. So I thought it was a great moment. Um, Well, let's... Either Gandalf is really horrible at bartering or the (laughs) eagles are jerks, right? Just take me to the stinking mountain. It's right there, you know? (laughs) Like, come on, guys. Yeah. Maybe they couldn't go that far 
Maybe they couldn't yeah. cross the, the Greenwood or something. I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've always found that interesting. Like, it, that's all over Tolkien boards. If you ever read the Tolkien boards, that's one of the biggest questions brought up. Like, why wouldn't they just take them there? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, good thing they came. We see the we see Gandalf uh, whispering to the butterfly and the butterfly goes up. It's insinuated that the butterfly goes and tells the eagles or passes a word along so the eagles can come. And then that's also reflected in uh, the Fellowship of the, the Ring, the first Lord of the Rings movie, where Gandalf summons the eagle through the butterfly as well. So that's a good callback or flash forward or whatever you want to call it for that moment. So those are the major events of the film. I uh, want to quickly talk about some of the, the costume design, the set design, visual effects, uh, CG, character design, and Alan Lee's artwork. You know, we see it in the maps. We see it in just everything, really. And then the soundtrack of the film. So just kind of the ambiance of the film. Uh, one thing I've always appreciated about Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit is just how real it feels. I mean, that really sets the tone, really creates a great story, a backdrop for these characters to to have their adventures, to have their character developments. And I think if it was subpar, if these things were subpar, the movie definitely wouldn't be as good and wouldn't be as interesting for me anyway. What's your guys' take on, on these things, Mark? I um oh I'm go ahead, Kimball. You can go, Mark. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I was just gonna say I really appreciate the music um, for these for this these Middle Earth films. Um, I think, especially in Lord of the Rings, you can just play the movie without any dialogue, and you'll know what's happening because the different themes. I just recently watched that trilogy and I could really identify here's the Gondor theme. This is the fellowship theme. This is the, uh, Mordor theme. And that they really had for them. It was a little weak though. In these Hobbit films, there's a few extra themes added, but, um, yeah, I kind of wish that they had done that, the music and the themes a little bit better with the Hobbit. I did notice there was a little bit of a conflicting, themes for example um the elves in rivendell they have a different theme than the elves in lothlorien and for some reason whenever the um elves were attacking the wargs and the orcs right by that secret passage they were playing the theme music for lothlorien and those weren't lothlorien elves at least from what I understood. So I noticed that, and that kind of was a little bit of a letdown. Also with um, the flashback in The Fellowship of the Ring when Bilbo finds the ring, these are just little things that bother me. I just like continuity. I appreciate it. And when Bilbo finds the ring, it's different in The Fellowship than it is in The Hobbit. And I just wish that Peter Jackson would have made it at least when he finds the ring, a very similar scene because it's pretty, pretty distinct. The ring is on a rock in the Hobbit, but in the Fellowship, it's kind of in in dirt and sand. So, those are just little differences that I found that just rub me the wrong way a tad. But um, 
I really, I really like the soundtrack. The music is, is just what does it to me. You can just listen to the music and that tells the story just by itself. Yeah, I agree with the soundtrack, what you're saying there. The Lord of the Rings soundtrack was um, heads and tails above everything. And you, like, you, like you said, you could just listen to it and know what's going on. And The Hobbit is not up to that level. A lot of great moments with the soundtrack, but it's it's not the same level. So, uh, like I would say, the Lord of the Rings soundtrack would be a ten. This would be like an eight. So it's not bad. It's just you can just tell there's a difference. It's not as good. What about for you, Mark? You know, I uh, I didn't notice a lot of that. Um, <laughs> I don't, uh, I'm not a big artsy guy. (laughs) And so I don't notice a lot of that. I mean, I think, you know, some of the costumes are cool and some of the scenery is cool. The only thing that I, that really jumps out to me and that I like is the Hobbit themes, you know, the song, you know, start of Lord of the Rings, whenever they go to, you know, Hobbiton and stuff. I really like that because I think it shows like, it's almost like how peaceful and not necessarily simplistic, but, you know, just, uh, within nature and everything else the hobbits are you know it's just like everything is in order and it's just nice and comfortable and so whenever i hear that song it's just kind of like you get that feeling you know yeah. and uh and i i've always appreciated that song that's probably the only really song or soundtrack or anything that that's really come to my mind like i like you know when gandalf fights the you know uh, the Balrog, right? That song's cool just because it gets me into it. But I just I don't notice that stuff as much. Yeah. But uh, you know, I mean, I, I if you guys like, I give the soundtrack a ten. You know, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, I think, well, I think that kind of shows the how great it is. Because if it was bad or if it was out of place, you'd be like, oh, that's a weird design or that we've done that <laughs> song doesn't go with this moment type thing. Right. So I think That's it, probably true. it just kind I, of fulfills the movie or fills in the, cause you do have to have a suspend a certain amount of belief to watch these films and all these, you know, secondary things help suspend that belief and help set the mood and the tone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this story is, is Bilbo's story. Um, how he decides to leave his home and go on this adventure, and on the way he finds the One Ring, and even though he doesn't know it yet, and he one of the things he says towards the end of the film is he wants to to join the company. He throughout the whole film we see he's not really sure. He has opportunities to leave. In one moment in the cave, he starts to leave, but then he isn't able to. And so there's always that question of you know from the beginning. He decides not to go on the quest. Then at the last minute, he decides to go on the quest. He goes to Rivendell. He wants to stay, but kind of feels like he has to go. And then in the cave, he decides to leave, but then he can't. He actually can't leave at that point. And then when they escape the Misty Mountains and the goblins in, in Gollum, he is there with the ring on and is invisible, and he's listened to the company talk. And again, Thorne's bashing on him kind of talking bad about him you know he was he's a coward he doesn't deserve to be here and he has to make a decision one last time you know is he in or is he out so he takes off the ring he decides 
takes off the ring and he says, you know, I'm in, I'm in with you guys. I want to help you guys find a home. Sure, I'd rather be back at my house, living the good life, but you guys can't do that and I want to help you guys do that. So I think it's a very key moment for, for Bilbo as a person, as a character, and for the whole story, the whole trilogy. So do you guys have any thoughts on, on Bilbo's angst or his decisions that he has to make throughout the movie? Mark? You know, I think it's um, a lot to do with the same struggle he had when he first left, right? I mean, he he wants to to try to be a hero. He wants to, you know, do these things, but it's so far out of everything he's known in his comfort zone. You know, it's almost like, like I said, this internal struggle. And I like how uh, at, at that point when he kind of decides this is what I want to do and he tells I think it's in the second movie he says it but you know he tells Gandalf he's like I found something he's like what what'd you find he's like I found my courage and uh, and I think and that kind of happens in the book too there comes a part in the book where he just decides look this this is what I want to do and this is what I want to be you know and uh, um, and I think the whole time, you see him like, you know, with the different decisions, what should I do? Should I leave? Should I not go back to the the door? Should I go back and, and fight with him? I think you just see that like he's really fighting who he wants to be. And uh, and obviously we get this great adventurous hobbit, you know, and, uh, and I like it. I, I like the decisions he made and it shows his internal struggle. Yeah. What about for you, Kimbo? I think Bilbo is a good role model for us uh, in taking criticism and not letting it affect us. He, he gets told many times he shouldn't be there and he doesn't want to be there, but he still perseveres. And I think that's something that today um, there's so much criticism, so many voices that tell us, don't do that. You're not any good. And we listen to it, but Bilbo, you know, he doesn't listen to it. He doesn't even, he doesn't even give it a second thought, really. And he freely forgives Thorin and embraces him, and they form a strong friendship, as we'll see in the next few chapters. And that's just such good, good character development. Whenever they're, whenever they're not, whenever a character is still relatable, but it's not too out of reach for us to try to emulate and try to become like. And that's what I really like about, about Bilbo in him responding to these um, afflictions or to this opposition that he gets from his own friends. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, he, he does persevere and does take it, you know, takes it in stride and is able to move past all the criticism. I think, I don't know if I could, if I was with, these guys and they were constantly well not constantly but they were um bagging on me and telling me i wasn't good enough i don't know how i'd react to that so um definitely has the fortitude within to to get past that um Mm -hmm. so great character development for bilbo whose whose story this is and we see it play out throughout the film in the back with the backdrop of this great adventure so Great movie overall. Um, one thing with Gandalf being the constant and kind of pushing this group along, he always tends to have some words of wisdom 
for his his friends, his company mates. And one that stuck out, stood out to me was when he tells Bilbo, you know, true courage is about knowing not when to take a life, but when to spare one. And that wisdom comes into play later as he's faced with killing Gollum or not killing Gollum. And he demonstrates true, true courage by not doing that, which essentially plays out throughout the rest of this these movies. The, the consequences of sparing his life, you know, plays major um, consequences in what happens after this film. So, mm-hmm. and I know Kimball, you had uh, mentioned earlier about how Gandalf had said that you know it's the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay, and that's why he likes Bilbo Baggins. So, that's another good quote from Gandalf in this film. Um, so yeah I think for me overall this is one of the the better films out there Um, I would I'd give it an A I mean A minus maybe but uh, definitely the extended editions of of these films are the ones to go for because it does give a lot more context a lot more detail a lot more story and it's very watchable so for me definitely one of the better films out there and um, I've rewatched it several times, so and I'll probably watch it a few more times as as the years goes on. Uh, f- what about for you, Kimball? What are some of your final thoughts on The Hobbit: An Unexpected Journey? Uh, this is a good film. When I saw it in in the theater, I was impressed. It, I wasn't let down or disappointed at all. I do want to know what it would be like. I've watched it before watching any of the Lord of the Rings films because it's easy to compare it. You have this great film set on a pedestal and then you have something coming up behind it. And um, even Peter Jackson was was worried about that. And that's why he was very hesitant to produce, to direct The Hobbit because he didn't want to compete with himself. And I... I just I don't like the the backlash that the Hobbit gets because it's not as good as the original trilogy. Um, that may be, but it might not be just because the majority of us have seen the Lord of the Rings first. So, yeah, I plan to whenever I have kids someday, I would like to introduce the Hobbit to them first and see how they gauge that film, and then introduce Lord of the Rings. That way, I think they could get more of an objective opinion. But I. I really like it. It does have its flaws, but it's as far as a film, it's it's one of the best out there. Yeah. Yeah, good points. What about for you, Mark? What are some final thoughts on this film? I for me overall, I think I give it a B and I take points away because of all the extras. Right. And I also take some points away. I, I give a lot of points because, uh, you know, they they sing um, a couple of the songs that were in the books. But I take points away because they did horrible at the Goblin Town song. <laughs> I uh, that's like one of my favorite parts in the 1977 film. Right. When I was a kid and I still love that part today. Like I rewatched it maybe a year ago. I was like, yeah, that's still a hundred times better than what I saw in the new movie. Right. So I, uh, I take points away for, for not having an awesome song there. But, uh, I mean, other than that, I, it really was a good show. It was a great introduction to the, 
to the whole series. I was a little disappointed as well as far as the 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 title goes, and I kept wondering if they were going to do this for any of the titles. But when the movie originally came out, it wasn't or the book, it wasn't going to be called The Hobbit. It was going to be called There and Back Again, A Hobbit's Tale. And so I wanted to see one of these movies named There and Back Again. Yeah. One of the six movies. They had six movies to name one of them, and they just didn't do it. But uh, um, no, I, you know, I, I've, I, I give this, you know, movie great points, and I, I'm going to continue watching it. I have my own pet peeves, and so you know, maybe that uh, makes me a bad critic today. You know, I might as well <laughs> join Rotten Tomatoes. But uh, I. Uh, I do like it. I just take points away. Yeah, so it was a great, great film, a good watch, and we want to thank everyone for joining us on The Hobbit Rewatch, Chapter 1, An Unexpected Journey, the special extended edition. We will be covering Chapter 2, as well as the rest of the films in the Middle Earth movies. So we want to thank you guys for joining us. Please listen to us on SoundCloud.com iTunes, Stitcher, your favorite podcast app. You know, we're there. So give us a listen. Give us a review. Uh, hit us up on Facebook with uh, some comments or your um, take on The Hobbit Chapter 1 and an unexpected journey whether you liked it or you didn't like it or what, you know, you kind of your thoughts were on, on that movie. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening to our podcast and for taking the time to interact with us and we look forward to doing chapter two thank you guys and have a good night see you guys good night